I want to thank uh, Robin and our praise team and also our tech crew for coming in on this Sunday. And it's good to be with you, even if it is in kind of this crazy format. Uh, I had planned on being with my family up in New York uh, City for spring break, and I'm glad we're not there. But I had asked John Herzog to fill in, and he's prepared a great lesson, a very timely lesson uh, for us today. So he's going to continue to bring our sermon to us today. But I want to get up in, in front of the family because it has been a crazy week. I mean, we've had national and statewide emergencies. Uh, we've had March Madness canceled. So you know, boy, it, it is serious if they're doing that. And we've had the NHL and the NBA either shut down or, or close or postpone their seasons. And so we've had school districts trying to figure out, do we just extend spring break or do we go online? So a lot of things are happening. We have two college kids. They're trying to figure out, uh, are they going to be staying here the rest of the semester? And so how long will this keep going? Employers are, are scrambling, trying to figure out, do we shut our doors down? Uh, do we office out of the house? How are we going to operate as this thing continues to grow and to spread? But the church has always weathered storms well, right? It has. And so whether it's a literal storm like a tornado or a hurricane or other natural disaster, or, or maybe it's, it's a worldwide event or a local event like a, a school shooting or 9-11, or the church weathers these things well because we know we can get together. We know we can come together and we can sing songs of praise and, and we can lift up prayers to our Heavenly Father and we can hear words of encouragement that remind us that we are a people of hope. But mainly it's connecting closer to God during these uncertain times and also connecting and holding hands with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's what made the decision not to do that this Sunday and for the foreseeable future a very difficult decision for our leaders because we know how important it is and the strength that we gain through being with one another. But we're going to get through this crisis together. A lot of you have asked, okay, well, how long? How long until the canoe gets righted? How long are we going to be in this state of uncertainty? And I would just tell you that things remain very fluid and things are changing by the day and sometimes by the hour. But I want to give you confidence that your leaders are looking out for your best interests. We're meeting directly with Collin County health officials and other local leaders to get the most up-to-date information that impacts the High Point family so we can make the best decisions as possible. I want to let you know that currently in the state of Texas, there are 51 that have tested positive for the virus. There have been 11 in Dallas County and seven in Collin County, most close to us. And the majority of those are over in Frisco. So those numbers are going to continue to climb. So for the time being, we're going to suspend meeting with one another together in person. Each small group can make a decision for themselves and discern what's best and in their interest. Our office hours are going to get scaled back this week with a skeleton crew and a skeleton number of hours, and we'll determine how much longer we'll continue meeting up here at the building. Most of our leadership meetings will be online and over the phone, and we're going to have to get creative when it comes to discipleship. 
some of our, our ministers are meeting this morning and are filming content. Some of our adult Bible class leaders will do the same. So we can continue growing in our faith and our knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're also going to tap in a lot more to Right Now Media. And every member of the High Point family has access to a whole treasure trove of content. So we want to keep growing during this time. And a lot of us have more downtime. We'll use this time to grow in your faith. But we're also going to have to get creative in how we care for the High Point family and for one another. I'm particularly concerned about our High Point seniors and those that are most vulnerable to this virus. So tomorrow morning, our staff will be getting together and assembling a list of shut-ins and widows and widowers and seniors that we need to connect with on a regular basis. So if you would like to adopt one of these members for the next month, not necessarily going by to see them, but connecting with them, uh, and making sure they have the groceries and medications that they need and letting them know that they're, they are cared for, please contact the church office or Teresa Riley directly, and we will help you with this adoption process. But mainly I'm calling for us to pray. Pray for God's protection. Pray for God's healing. And most importantly, pray for God's peace to cover over us. I'm mindful of Luke chapter 7 where a woman who had lived a very sinful life came to Jesus, and she decided to pour out very expensive perfume on his feet. And as she did that, her tears were added to the mix as well, and she dried his feet with her hair. And Jesus gave her these words of encouragement in Luke chapter 7 and verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. And that's my prayer for each of us as the High Point family that we truly are a people of peace. Let's pray together. Lord, these are very uncertain times. And Lord, we as the High Point family want to honor you in the things that we do and how we react to what's going on around us. Lord, give us a peace that passes understanding. So as we talk with our family members, as we interact with neighbors, either uh, online or in person, Lord, I, I, I pray that we can be a people that has an inner peace that can't be explained by the trials that go on around us. Lord, I, I pray that you allow this time to bring people closer to you like what happened after 9-11. I pray this can be an opportunity for the church to reach out for the gospel to be spread and Lord, for people to really be able to connect people with the saving message of your son, Jesus Christ, we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Thanks, Brad. You, know, you have to feel a little bit for Brad that... Uh, he lost his pickup truck to the uh, capital campaign, and now he's lost his vacation to the coronavirus. So, Brad, we appreciate the time that you spent this week in, in coordinating this, this service for us. Uh, when I got the call from Brad, uh, like most of you who have ever preached before, you immediately begin to wonder what the Holy Spirit will put on your heart to share with the congregation. And so it was with me, and it's, it's interesting that the very day when I hung up from talking to Brad, I got a, a uh, 
Facebook message from an old friend of mine, Joe Beam, who's a preacher in, in Georgia now and uh, travels doing marriage enrichment seminars and that sort of thing. And the challenge that, that Joe put on the internet was, if you only had one more sermon to preach in your entire life, what would it be? That lays a pretty heavy burden on your heart. If you only had one more to give, what would be important enough to include in that sermon? And as much as I like to preach directly from the book, you know, we used to be known as people of the book. Now we're known as people of the iPad and the iPhone. But we still are, are very focused in the scriptures for our direction and for our guidance. It struck me that in the first century, when the faith was growing its most rapidly, the Bible canon wasn't even totally built until about 382 A.D., so what was it in that first century church that caused the church to grow so rapidly without the scriptures to go by? And I'm convinced as much as we, we admire the first century church, we've left out something that, that they had that I'd like to see us find again. And that's sharing our personal testimonies. I think what happened in the first century church when people gathered together is people got together to tell their personal experience with interfacing with Jesus Christ, that it changed their life and that they shared with one another how it changed their life. So I felt God through the Holy Spirit was once again asking me to do something that I'm really uncomfortable doing, and that was giving my personal story of my salvation, my redemption, my sanctification. As a context for this story, I'd like us to look at a story that Jesus told to maybe help put what I want to share in context. It comes from Luke chapter 15. So if you brought your Bibles, or if you have your Bibles there at home, if you'll turn over to Luke chapter 15, there's a story Jesus told about a lost son. It begins in verse 11. And I just want us to share that together for those who may not have their Bibles. It says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the, young man, uh, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way away, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. If you'll allow me some liberty with Jesus' story, I want to adjust it just a little bit to fit my situation just a little bit better. I'm just going to sort of change the beginning. That a certain man had three types of sons. The first was a singular, and he had one natural son who loved him dearly, was confident in his inheritance, knew who he was, and was willing to follow the father's will wherever it took him. But there were two other types of sons, adopted sons, sons that weren't natural sons of the father. One type of adopted son feared the man and felt that through hard work and obedience he could earn the father's favor. He feared leaving the farm and respected the father but didn't have the love of the natural son. He felt he could earn his inheritance. The other type of son became disillusioned under the father's authority. The area of the farm he was asked to work had rocks and thistles and didn't seem to produce crops like the older brother and the natural son. So the younger son went to the father and demanded he give him the one thing he valued the most, his will, which he takes to the far country and uses it in wasted ways that bring shame to himself and to his adopted father. So how does that fit my story? I grew up in a Christian home where I learned the will of the Father as a set of rules and a way of doing things that I followed and that I thought would produce an abundant crop of righteousness. I was given a handbook to follow of how to farm. None of that had anything to do with loving the Father that had adopted me and provided clothing, protection, and provision. For a while, all that worked. I followed the rules. I was proud of my crop of righteousness. I learned the book as well or better than most and felt I had the favor of my father. All that changed in my 22nd year. In my 22nd year, I went to war. Suddenly, the ground I was asked to plow was full of boulders and thistles and rocks and nothing in the guidebook I'd been given seemed to apply anymore. I immediately went from knowing all the answers to not even really knowing the questions or understanding anything. The new lessons I learned in Vietnam was that I was completely capable of dehumanizing another human being. I learned that nothing or anybody around me would ever mean enough to me again to be at a level that losing it would hurt. The motto of the Vietnam veteran became, don't mean nothing. So when I got home, I went to the father and asked him for the one thing I valued, my will. I took it to the far country, 
where it led to the inevitable pigsty. Things I had cherished before seemed to have lost their value. My church, worst of all, my family, and even my God. You do things that dishonor yourself and your family and your God when you're in the pigsty. Others in this pigsty will tell you that things are as good as they can ever be and that corn husks are all you deserve. Nothing from your previous life's rule book seems to apply and it seems impossible that you could ever return to producing a crop of righteousness. Fortunately for me, the one place again where my story diverges from the one that Jesus told in Luke 15 is that I had some other adopted brothers who had been in the far country also and had returned to the Father, who were unwilling to leave me in the far country wallowing in the pigsty. The most important one of those who stuck by me and encouraged me was my wife. Another was a senior gentleman who encouraged me to reread what I thought was a rule book and to reread it this time as a love letter from my adopted father. Ecclesiastes is one of the places I started. It was written by another old gentleman who was at the end of his life looking back on it. And when the book started out, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, it made perfect sense to me. Nothing in my life had meaning anymore. Also, unlike the young man in Jesus' story, I didn't come to my senses immediately the way he did. It took me some time with the encouragement of that older brother and a passage that he shared with me to work out my own salvation through that love letter and to take my first step toward home. I did. What I want to share is that once you take that first step toward home and the rest of that parable becomes imminently true. The father sprints to a child that is starting for home. He sees us from a long way off. And when he gets to us, he takes off the rags that we've been wallowing in and puts on a new cloak of righteousness. It's the best cloak he has in the house. It's one that comes from his natural son's wardrobe. It's the cloak of grace. He puts a new ring on our finger that allows us to once again do business in his name in a way that we never thought was possible in the far country. And he puts new sandals on our feet that allows us to go to other people and tell them about the love this adopted father has for all of his children. So what about the older brother when I came home? There were those. His issues are his issues. He wears the same clothes I do, provided by the Father. Again, the ensemble is called grace. If he just asked the Father, the Father would throw a party for him and his friends, but that's not necessarily how he views the Father. He views the Father in fear instead of in love. So don't worry about the older brother and how he looks at you. Leave his issues between him and the father to work out. Focus on how the natural son views you, since it's his cloak that you're wearing out of his wardrobe. The father closed you with it when you returned from the far country, 
and the natural son was ecstatic to offer it. I still have intimacy issues with others and probably always will, but have learned from the natural son that agape love is an action, not a feeling. And I'm learning to treat others with respect and concern that the Father has for them. My journey through God's love letter has convinced me that I may never perfectly fit theologically with any organized religious group. But in my faith in the Father's love and grace, it has taught me that I will fit with them all. I need the fellowship of any of my brothers who are willing to accept me for who I am and that while I may still not plow straight rows, I'll never leave the Father's farm again. In that, this is our practice to offer invitations in our church buildings. There's no one physically here. But I want to offer one over the, over the air. First to the younger brother who may still be in the far country. Meaning will only be found when you return to the farm and begin to find it again in the will of your father. There's no meaning in your own will. There are lots of us here who have been to the far country ready to celebrate with you and the father on your return and the natural son loves you as much as the father and is willing to lend you his righteousness to replace the righteousness you've lost. To the older brothers, recognize your own adoption and that the father owes you nothing and will never be in your debt for all the work that you've done for him. The father is just as willing to celebrate with you and your friends as he is with your brother that has returned from the far country. All you have to do is ask. Accept your brother that's returned. He wears the same clothing you do, which has been freely given to both of you by the Father from the wardrobe of the natural son. Finally, this portion where I'm standing of the Father's farm is big enough for all the Father's adopted children. The natural son who really has the only right to inherit it all is willing to share the kingdom with as many as his father will adopt. Some of the ground here will be smooth and fertile, some of it will be rocky and hard, but we'll all work it together and let the father worry about producing the crop. There's a place for you at High Point where many of us have been where you are, either as the rebellious younger brother or as the bitter older one. We're learning to agape each other here under the will of the Father. So if you have God's love letter somewhere in your presence this morning at your house or here in the building, I would ask you to get it back out and begin to reread it for the first time. There's so much in there that, sh that the Father is willing to share that he doesn't care where you've been. He only cares where you're going. We're here to share that journey with you if you'll take the first step toward home. Robin?